This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Please turn in your Bible to, not Genesis, for a change. Genesis was a blessing. We're now in Luke, Luke chapter 1. Uh, I will have to correct uh, Kim. He gave me a little too much credit. I'm not doing the entire uh, Advent series, but I get to, to preach multiple times over the next six weeks or so, which is a huge blessing for me, So, uh, and ho- hopefully for you too. Um, Luke chapter 1 is our passage this morning. Well, I think we could finally all agree now that we are now in the Christmas season. Amen? Though some of us have been listening to Christmas music since early October, which is good and right, (laughs) even the most curmudgeonly among us must now acknowledge that we have reached that most wonderful time of the year in which we enjoy the traditions and activities that should ultimately rightly point us to the celebration of the birth of our Savior. Even as an early Christmas celebration guy, it's hard for me to wait even until mid-fall to start thinking about Christmas. Even when we're still sweating under the lingering summer heat, I'm thinking about sweater weather and ornaments and hot chocolate. In the midst of October's spooky Halloween gloom, even when it seems that everyone around us is for some reason surrounding themselves in a celebration of death, I am ready to belt out a joy to the world and to uh, paraphrase the reformers, declare, after darkness, twinkle lights. I love Christmas. I love Christmas because the story of Christmas is a story of hope, of prophecies fulfilled, of promises kept, and hope realized. Now, we've spent the last few years in Genesis seeing that truth played out in the lives of the patriarchs. So now we turn to the New Testament to see how our unchanging God continues to keep his word and rescue his people. This morning we'll begin the study of Luke with first a brief introduction from the author himself. Now you're in your uh, bulletin it says we're starting in verse 5. We're going to start in verse 1 because every verse of every chapter is God's word and is good for us. We'll begin with a brief introduction by the author himself and then the story of the birth announcement of of a miraculous baby boy. Though not the one we normally celebrate during the Christmas season. In fact what we have today in verses 5 through 25 is the good news or gospel that came before the gospel. In our passage today, we'll uh, see our our main characters introduced. This is your outline. Our main characters introduced in verses 5 through 7. The good news announced in verses 8 through 17. The good news doubted in verses 18 through 23. And then the good news received in verses 24 and 25. So, introductions, good news announced... Good news doubted, and good news received. Now my aim this morning is the same as Luke's, that you will hear this message and have certainty about Jesus the Messiah. And my hope is also that, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, you will be reminded that God hears your prayers, and he is faithful to keep his promises to his people. So let's begin with prayer. Father God, we are your people. 
And we are here this morning to hear from you. So Lord, in this time, I pray that your word is loud and clear and that our hearts are receptive and responsive, that we are good soil, ready to receive this word with meekness so that we may produce a harvest of righteousness. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see today, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Let's look at Luke 1, starting in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the Gospel of Luke begins with this short address. And while this isn't the main thrust of our passage today, we're gonna, I, I don't want to pass this over completely because I think it says something very important to us that will help us in our study of Luke. So let's take a few minutes, we'll examine it. The first thing we should acknowledge is that Luke's name doesn't actually appear in the text of this gospel that is attributed to him. This book is the first of a two-volume history of the life of Jesus and the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. One of the reasons we attribute this book to Luke is that this introduction and the one in the first chapter of Acts tie the two volumes together. And halfway through Acts, the narrator becomes part of that story. From the very beginning, the early church affirmed that Luke is the author of both books. And despite some disputes in the academy, as there always are, faithful Bible scholars in later generations are still able to say this with confidence, that Luke is the author of this gospel. Paul calls Luke the beloved physician in in his letters. And some scholars infer that Luke may have actually come to faith in Jesus under Paul's ministry, though we don't know for sure. He was Gentile, possibly a Greek. He may have been a Jewish convert before he, came, before he came to believe in Jesus. This gives Luke a slightly different perspective and focus in his account of Jesus than some of the other gospel writers who were, uh, who were born Jews or who were closely aligned with uh, some of the apostles. While Luke does describe and recount a fair bit of the same teaching and events that some of the other gospels cover, specifically Matthew and Mark, he will often focus on different details and nuances or structure his accounts in different ways to to bring out aspects of these events that some of the others may not. It's one of the blessings of having multiple Gospels is because we get to see different facets of the life of Jesus and who he is. Now, in verses 1 and 2, Luke acknowledges that some have sought to write accounts of the events surrounding the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and others were eyewitnesses and recounted an oral history of Jesus' ministry and, and teaching. The word accomplished here in, in verse 1 can also be rendered, it's, it, it's accomplished in the, in the ESV. In some translations, it's rendered as fulfilled, as in the fulfillment of prophecy. In, and this is a theme that Luke takes up in his gospel. Um, this language is actually mirrored at the end of Luke as well. As Jesus says to his disciples that you are my witnesses and that you have seen all of that which was written about me in the scriptures fulfilled. So we have bookends of this idea of eyewitnesses bearing witness to the fulfillment 
of what was declared. So Luke says he thought it was good to compile an orderly account as well. This tells us that Luke's approach, given his lack of firsthand knowledge, again, he wasn't one of the first disciples, is one of an investigative reporter relying on written and oral testimony of others. Throughout these accounts, Luke will give specific names and places, grounding this testimony in details that could have been verified by his original audience. In addition, there are certain comments about the thoughts and feelings of people that could only be available if Luke had actually talked to them or talked to their family members to get that information. We can also see the influence of other gospel writers like Mark and Matthew. That's why those three books seem to have a fair amount of material in common, though, as I said, each author organizes this material a little bit differently with different aims and focuses. Now, in verse 3, Luke addresses his orderly account to someone named Theophilus, who is mentioned only in this verse and in Acts 1.1. The word means lover of God and is very likely being used as a pseudonym or a code name. Now, some commentators suggest he's actually writing generally to the church as, as we uh, who love God would be interested in this account. But others suggest, and I think rightly, that Theophilus is more likely a specific person, perhaps someone of rank and financial means who is Luke's patron in this theological research project. The title, Most Excellent, is used in other places in Scripture as an honorific for someone who is of high social status. So when he addresses Most Excellent Theophilus, He's perhaps someone who, talking to someone who is uh, a noble or someone of, of high, uh, a high rank in, in society. Whatever his identity, this Theophilus has been learning about Jesus, and Luke's goal for this account is clearly stated in verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things about which you have been taught. Luke has worked to compile an orderly account based on eyewitness testimony, written documentation, an oral history in order that Theophilus and all who would read this gospel after him would have confidence that these things are true. Now, friend, if you're visiting with us today and you aren't a Christian, or maybe if you are, and you're approaching the story of Jesus and the writings of the Bible with any degree of skepticism, this is our hope for you as well. Christianity is not a religion of mythology and mindless acceptance. Our message is grounded in the historical reality of Jesus the Christ, who really was and truly was born in human flesh, lived a sinless life, physically died on a Roman cross, and then was bodily raised up again to life three days later and attested to by many witnesses. These are the truths we affirm, and they can be admittedly challenging because some of them are supernatural. I mean, today we're going to talk about an angelic visitation and a prophecy and a scientifically improbable pregnancy. We proclaim a message that can't fully be understood solely based on empirical data and observation. We admit this freely. It does require faith. But Christianity is a faith that welcomes honest questions, and will stand up to scrutiny. So if you're sitting here as a skeptic, I want you to know that you are sincerely welcome. We welcome your questions. 
our prayer for you this morning is that you will eventually find the certainty that Luke had and the certainty that we have. Certainty that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and that he did what he says he did. Certainty that comes from knowing Jesus himself as Lord and Savior. So with the author's introduction in place, let's look at the first story in this gospel narrative. And rather than starting with the birth of Jesus, Luke begins by telling us of a miraculous birth, the miraculous birth of Jesus' cousin John. So let's get to know his parents here in the next few verses, verses 5 through 7, as we get to know our characters. Luke 5, oh, excuse me, Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So the story begins during the reign of Herod the Great, who was the regional monarch ruling over Judea, uh, the region around Judea, under the umbrella of Roman occupation from about 37 B.C. to about 4 B.C. And the historians in here can correct me on my dates if I'm a little wrong. Herod would eventually die and be replaced by his children, and and he doesn't really affect this part of, of our story directly. However, Luke gives us this detail for two reasons. First, to give us the time and place of these events in in verses 5 through 25. But secondly, because the one good thing that Herod did was to renovate and expand the temple in Jerusalem, where our story takes place this morning. Now, in this section, we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth, both descended from the tribe of Levi and the family line of Aaron, brother of Moses and first high priest of Israel. Luke describes them as both being righteous before God, walking blamelessly, in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This description recalls saints of the Old Testament, like Noah, who lived obediently and faithfully before God. Now, the word blameless here is not pointing to sinless perfection. Rather, these these two were still sinners. They were in need of redemption, but they lived uprightly, following all of God's commands. As Matthew Henry notes, no one could charge them with open, scandalous sins. They lived honestly. And inoffensively, as ministers and their families are in a special manner concerned to do, so that the ministry be not blamed in their blame. But then Luke adds another description of verse 7 that might seem a little surprising, or a little different than what he had said previously. They have no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Children were then, as they are now, seen as a blessing of the Lord and and were considered the fruit of covenant obedience for God's people, according to Deuteronomy 7. To be barren was often thought of as being under the curse of God, punished for some secret sin. Indeed, God's law even describes childlessness as a consequence of certain sins, uh, for example, in Leviticus 20. There was a social stigma attached in this culture to being unable to conceive, Beyond that, there was a very real financial risk because if the husband of an older woman dies without providing her offspring, there's no one to care for her in her later years. So there was a real concern there for Elizabeth's well-being. 
when we read that Elizabeth was barren and that they both were past the age of producing children, we need to slow down and feel the weight of that for their sake. Zechariah and Elizabeth, righteous believers in Yahweh, were growing old without knowing the blessing of having children. Zechariah was in lifelong vocational ministry. Elizabeth came from a priestly family before marrying a priest. These two saints walked faithfully with God, kept his commandments, conducted themselves with integrity, and yet their prayers for offspring seemed to go unanswered. Their years of groaning before the Lord, pleading for a baby, perhaps seemed to be wasted after all. These pangs and wounds are not uncommon to us now, are they? Like David in Psalm 17 or Job in Job 21, we can sometimes chafe at seeing those who deny our Lord receive the blessings of children while some of us remain single and and others who are married struggle to conceive or to carry a baby to term. Loved ones, I know that some of you feel this burden. And though you may feel like you are alone in this struggle, I can assure you that you aren't. Our trust is in the Lord, and we look to him for blessing and provision. And though we are asking for good and holy things, we seem to get no response. Father, I want to get married and have a family. Father, we want to have a baby, but we can't conceive. Father, why do our babies miscarry? Father, I'm trying so hard to provide for my family, and yet it seems like all of my efforts are amounting to nothing. Father, do you see me? Do you hear me? Why do you feel so far off? Faithful brother, faithful sister, I am here this morning to tell you that your God hears you. He sees you. And he loves you. And his plans for you are truly for your good. This passage is here in part to remind us that he will keep his promises to his people the way he always has. So let's keep reading. Verse 8. Now while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now pause there for a second. Zechariah was part of the priestly order that was responsible for the care and maintenance of the temple of temple worship. This was first described back in 1 Chronicles uh, uh, 23 and 24. His division was one of 24 priestly divisions that rotated in staffing the temple to perform the daily functions of temple worship in Jerusalem throughout the year. 
During the rest of the year, priests like Zechariah would often serve as local civil judges or scribes in their local synagogue, teaching the word of God to people. But two times a year, their division, consisting of possibly several hundred priests, would be called up, a bit like the National Guard, would be called up for temple service for one week. And anywhere from 50 to 90 of these priests each day would be assigned to specific priestly functions. Now, these could include things like receiving and inspecting and butchering the sacrificial animals for daily sacrifices, sprinkling the blood on the altar, maintaining the fire in the altar, uh, cleaning around the altar, because it's a pretty bloody mess when all these sacrifices come in every day. Um, instructing the people, leading the people in worship at the temple, and so on. One of the most important duties would be to be selected to go into the holy place. So not the, mo- not the holy of holies, because that's only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. But to go into the holy place to burn an incense, to burn incense, uh, to accompany the lighting of the lamps during the morning and evening prayers. So as the prayers of the people of God rise up, the incense is supposed to rise up with them as a sweet aroma. Now, being selected to burn incense was a rare privilege, and statistically, it would maybe happen once in a lifetime for, for these priests, because there were so many, there were thousands, I mean, some of the numbers vary, but there were thousands of priests who had these duties each year. And you're, you're talking about one person a day who, who gets chosen for this. So statistically, it's a very small chance. So if it happens to you once, that's your once. That's the peak of your ministerial career as a priest. So in verses 8 and 9, Luke says that Zechariah was chosen by lot. It's a a type of like a a random selection, like rolling dice almost. Chosen by lot to burn incense in the holy place. Now some commentators uh, suggest that this might have taken place on the Sabbath because there's a great multitude outside, which most likely would have happened on Sabbath. Um, But we don't know that for sure. Now, this is possibly the first and only time that Zechariah, as a priest, would ever set foot inside the holy place. So this is a big deal. It's a big deal for him. It's a big day. Now, while it appears at first he was selected at random, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It was God's providential will that Zechariah's number would get pulled on this day. And that's because God had some very special news for him. Let's keep reading, verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. But he, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, for those of us who 
have the benefit of being familiar with this story. This might not, qu- this might not hit as hard as it should. So I want to remind you again of the historical context here. This angelic visitation was taking place about 400 years since the word of the Lord was given prophetically to the people of Israel. 400 years since the last prophet gave the last prophecy in Israel. Not only that, but it had been 500 years since and there was a record of an angelic message being given to God's people, as it happens, to a prophet named Zechariah, ironically. In the scriptures, the appearance of an angelic messenger signals that the Lord is about to act in a significant way. So, I mean, for faithful Zechariah, burning incense as the temple was a great enough honor, and then suddenly to be visited by an angel as you're burning incense is confusing and overwhelming completely outside of any expectation that he had for that day. Zechariah initially responds to the sight of the angel the the same way everyone else in recorded scripture responds to an angelic encounter. Terror. Angels in the Bible aren't the chubby cherubs of romantic art. And they're not the the placid, smiling ladies in, in white robes like in pop culture. We're not talking Roma Downey and Della Reese, okay? This is not, this is, that's, a, that's, that's a kind of a dated reference, so I appreciate y'all who are with me on that. The sheer otherworldliness of angels is so overwhelming to mortal men that every time they break into our view, their first words are always, do not be afraid. Such are the mighty warriors and servants of God. A fact that makes their faithful ministry to care for and watch over God's children that much more amazing when you think about it. The angel says to Zechariah, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Well, what prayer? Now, we would think based on the next phrase that the prayer in question is for he and his wife to have a child, right? But remember, Zechariah is old. Well past the age of being a new father, And it's very likely he stopped praying for a child long ago. He's probably just given up. So you add to that the fact that he was at that moment burning ceremonial incense in the temple during the time of the people's prayers. So if Zechariah was praying at all in this moment, it was most certainly for his people, for the rescue of Israel from foreign oppression, for the coming of the long promised Messiah, the Emmanuel, who would ransom captive Israel. Funny thing is, God was answering both prayers at the same time in this, mount, in this announcement. This should be another encouragement to us. If we have, even if we have stopped praying, God has not stopped listening. And even when we have given up hope, God is still working to accomplish his plans in us. The angel says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now the name John is an English version of the Hebrew name, which I am not about to try to pronounce. Something like Yohanan, but there's a lot more in it. Um, What this name means 
is that Yahweh is gracious. That's, I mean, names in this whole passage are wild. Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers or something like that. I mean, this, there's some good stuff happening here. Yahweh is gracious. How beautiful it is that God's act of grace to a faithful and frustrated couple is to give them a son. Next he says, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, which makes sense given the couple's long, hopeless years of longing for a child, but that joy will spill over, not just within this family, but into the wider community of Israel. And many, though not all, we should note, will rejoice because of John's birth. But this is not going to be any ordinary child. The angel says instead, he will be great before the Lord. Later, Jesus himself would confirm this in Luke 7 when John's disciples approach and ask Jesus to confirm if he is the one who is to come. Jesus says at that time that there was none greater than John born of women, though the one who is least in the kingdom of God that is to come will be greater even than he. In that same passage, Jesus says that John is not just a prophet, but he's the fulfillment of prophecy. Which prophecy? Well, hold your finger in Luke. Let's go to Malachi. Malachi, the last book of the, Old, of the Old Testament. So, once you stop seeing red text, stop. You're going to be close. Um, in my Bible, it's on, in, it's on page 802, uh, which if you're using one of the, the gift Bibles on the sides, you'll be right around that neighborhood. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Or just say verse 1. I know Malachi, is the, the, and the minor prophets, the pages may, be, may still be stuck together in your Bible. That's okay, no judgment. Um, Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now if you skip over to chapter 4, We'll pick up actually with uh, some of the, the text we had during our reading earlier. Malachi 4, starting in verse 5. These are, remember, these are the last prophetic words given to Israel for 400 years. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the reference that the angel's making, isn't it? In, in verses uh, 16 and 17. This messenger that Malachi describes, who is sent like Elijah the prophet, is the baby being promised to the old man standing in the holy place. Something that Jesus himself later confirmed uh, uh, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 12. That, that John would be, or John truly was, the Elijah that was to come. Now take a look at how this special baby is described in Luke 1 as being set apart by God. He must not drink alcohol. Now this may be alluding to the priestly vow for those serving in the tabernacle in Leviticus 10 that was established after the unfortunate incident with Aaron's sons. It could also be a reference to a Nazarite vow. 
said being set apart by God as a Nazarite, though there is no reference to John's hair not being cut, so we don't know for sure if that was what was happening there. It says he will be filled with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, in the Old Testament, a prophet or judge would be filled or anointed by the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish a particular mighty work on behalf of God's people or to communicate specific divine commands. John would receive this gift of the Holy Spirit for his entire life. Like the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, John was set apart from the womb to be God's messenger. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. John's ministry would spark revival among the people of Israel, and many of them, uh, many would hear him and repent of their sins, preparing them for the arrival of Jesus, the promised Messiah. And he will go in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make the make for the Lord a people prepared. As Malachi prophesied, the work of this Elijah uh, would till the soil of the hearts of Israel in advance of the Lord's Messiah. One thing to note in this announcement by the angel is the imagery being used is that of an Old Testament prophet or judge. Some of the instructions the angel, uh, from the angel sound like the instructions that were given to Manoah and his wife in Judges 13 when this barren couple was promised a mighty son whom they would name Samson. Similarly, we can hear echoes of this scenario in the desperate prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 for a son that she would raise as a Nazarite and devote to the Lord's service. In many ways, John would act as the final Old Testament prophet bridging the two testamental areas who would call the people of God back to repentance as he, in the words of Isaiah 40, verse 3, prepares the way of the Lord in the wilderness. So how does Zechariah react to this good news? Well, verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. Okay. Zechariah's terror has been overcome now by skepticism. It was as if he was asking, how, how can I know this? What, what proof can you give me? I mean, I'm an old man. My wife's past childbearing. This doesn't seem likely. Again, let's not lose the context. Zechariah is standing in the holy place. The smoke and smell of incense still lingering in the air. The murmurs of the praying congregation outside the walls. And standing before him is a glorious, otherworldly, spiritual being proclaiming the fulfillment of God's gracious answer to Zechariah's prayers. And he asks for proof. Now the mere act of asking for clarification is not the issue. We'll see later in chapter 1 with with a young girl named Mary who asks a similar question. What seems to be at play here is the heart posture of the question. Zechariah is doubting the angel's word, and he should have known better. This teacher of the law who has studied the scriptures all his life has forgotten the stories of the patriarchs. Zechariah has forgotten 
how Abraham and Sarah were promised offspring and yet still believed even though their bodies were as good as dead, as Paul says in Romans 4. Looking forward to the son whom the angel knowingly named Laughter. Zechariah has forgotten how God intervened to open the barren wombs of Rebekah and Rachel and so many others. He was so focused on what could never happen that he lost sight of what God could do and has done in the past. As one commentator put it, when our eyes are on our problems, we will not remember God's word and how it applies to us. Zechariah had the scriptures and he had the personal angelic announcement and yet was asking for more. Now, I don't want to read into the text, but if I were in the angel's sandals, I might have gotten a bit indignant. The angel's response in verse 19 gives Zechariah all the proof he needs. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you the good news. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, angelic visitors will actually refuse to give their names to to people when they give them messages. But in a few instances, they did. And one such instance was actually in Daniel the book of Daniel chapters 8 and 9, when Gabriel is identified as the angel giving the prophet instructions about and explanations of his troubling visions. Gabriel would be mentioned once more in the Bible later in this same chapter, announcing the birth of Jesus to Mary. Gabriel's status as one of the angels who stands in God's presence emphasizes his authority as one of Yahweh's ministers and the seriousness of this announcement. And don't miss that last phrase. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. In the Greek, that phrase is a form of the word evangelize. Gabriel was sent to evangelize Zechariah about the birth of the forerunner of the Messiah. Very good news indeed. Not just for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but for the whole world. So what's the consequence of Zechariah's unbelief? Let's keep reading verse 20. Still Gabriel speaking. He says, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, but he remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So Zechariah is struck mute by Gabriel. He was unable to speak until the baby is born. And since this baby hasn't even been conceived yet, we're talking at least, at least nine or ten months of not being able to say a word as a teacher in Israel. He can't even give the priestly blessing once he exits the temple. Now, one commentator notes that not only must he use gesture and signs to communicate with others, it's noted later in chapter 1 that others must do the same for him, so it's possible that he was not only mute, but deaf. This may seem like a harsh punishment, But considering the fact that he doubted an archangel's message to his face, getting a 10-month talking time out seems rather kind. 
In one sense, God was manifesting Zechariah's lack of hearing and his failure to speak truthfully about God's power and ability. In another sense, God is also graciously preventing Zechariah from speaking foolishly or hastily in order to teach him to think more carefully about speaking. And the next time we get to hear Zechariah speak in this chapter, he has something to say that is definitely worth listening to. So Zechariah leaves the holy place and people realize his inability to speak uh, is that he has seen a vision. He completes his rotation faithfully. He He works out his week faithfully despite the new challenges he now faces with his sudden disability. And then he goes home to his wife. Now here at the end of our passage, we find one more response to the good news of John's future birth. And that's in verses 24 and 25. After these days... His wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked, upon, when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So after decades of marriage with no hope of children, God graciously opens Elizabeth's womb and Zechariah and Elizabeth conceive. The verse says she kept herself hidden for five months. It's not explained why in the text, though some have suggested perhaps she wanted to protect the pregnancy or she was trying to keep herself ritually pure as Samson's mother was instructed to do back in Judges so that the baby would not be unclean when he was born. Perhaps she was embarrassed about becoming pregnant later in life. Perhaps she used that time hidden away to devote herself to prayer and praise. Whatever the reason, Luke reports her response to this good news in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Even in this last verse, we find echoes of Genesis. As Elizabeth's response reflects the words of Leah and Rachel from Genesis 29 and Genesis 30. That God has looked upon her, and he's taken away her reproach. We'll hear even more from faithful Elizabeth in a few weeks, but suffice it to say say she has learned from her husband's example and responded to this good news with a heart of gladness and expectation. Luke begins this orderly account of the life of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, by talking about the birth announcement of John, his cousin. Now, it may seem strange to begin the Christmas story or our Christmas series this way. But what Luke is doing in this introduction is reminding us that God has been telling one big story the whole time. A story of how he created mankind to know and love and serve him. How we rebelled against his righteous rule. We deserve his just wrath for our rebellion and self-rule. But, that, but how he has always had a plan for our redemption. A promise made back in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, rescuing us from the reign of sin and death through the substitute sacrifice of the Son. It's a promise that God was in the process of fulfilling when an old priest received an unexpected angelic visitor at the temple. And it's a promise that came true because God always keeps his word. 
rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, Israel. And he is coming. And he has come. And he's here. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name, for you are the faithful one. Every promise you make, every declaration you make, you keep. You bring it to pass. Because you are in control of all things. You are sovereign over all things. You are not only sovereign, but you are good. And out of your great kindness, you have chosen to love us. You've chosen to call a people to yourself. To make us like Jesus. To save us from our sins. We thank you for this text, and we thank you for our our brother and sister, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who, though imperfectly, believed and saw your promise being kept in their lives. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for those who are still doubting, those who are still unsure about this story. I pray that you would let this be the beginning of light shining in their hearts, that they might believe, that they might trust in Jesus, the Son of God, to be their Savior and to take away their sins. And I pray for those, my brothers and sisters, who are struggling who are struggling to hold on to hope, who are struggling to believe your promises, who are struggling to believe that you love them. I pray this would remind them that you, the Lord, do not change and therefore we are not consumed. We praise your name. Amen.